Hello and welcome or welcome back to Mind Over Chatter, the Cambridge University podcast. I'm Nick. I'm James. And I'm Naomi. I'm sure you've missed us over the summer. We've missed us, but fear not. We're back with a special episode ahead of season three of Mind Over Chatter. The Gates Cambridge Scholarship Programme is celebrating its 20th anniversary this year. So we've brought together two former Gates Cambridge scholars and a member of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to talk about ways in which individuals supported by the scholarship programme have been making a difference in the world. If you're new or old to the podcast, make sure you check out season one, which is all about climate change Perfect for the build-up to COP26. And if you're wondering about what the future might have in store, we've got an entire season dedicated to thinking all about the future in season two. Of course, in the meantime, please like and follow Mind Over Chatter on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now onto this episode. It's a slightly different format, meaning it's just me, minus James and Naomi. In this episode, we're going to be talking about how education both preserves inequality and how it can help us to overcome inequality. And we'll be exploring this from an international perspective, looking at education in places around the world, such as the US and Pakistan. So who were you talking to in this episode? Well, I talked to... Hi, I'm Aya, and I am a PhD candidate at the University of Michigan. And... Hi, I'm Sarah, and I am the Director of Early Learning and Education Pathways at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And I'm Arif Naveed. I'm uh, an Assistant Professor of Education and International Development at the University of Bath. And as usual, I began by asking our guests to tell us a little bit about their work. I work on the expansion of mass schooling in the countries of uh, the Global South and the social, economic and cultural implication of uh, this educational expansion. So I and my team make investments through grants and other forms uh, in education systems and interventions and practices that are intended to help all children and young people thrive and ultimately be able to go on and lead healthy and productive lives. I'm Aya Waller-Bay. I'm a proud Detroit and first-generation college student. I'm a PhD candidate in sociology at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. My research examines how Black students make meaning of their narratives and college personal statements when applying to both predominantly white institutions as well as historically Black colleges and universities. This episode is all about access to education. So can we sort of start by unpicking what we mean when we actually say access to education? I think a good starting point of this conversation could be to to uh, see that access to education is one of the fundamental uh, human rights. Uh, as Article 26 of the UN Charter of Human Rights says that everyone has the right to basic education that is free, equitably provided at all levels to promote the full development of the human personality and respect for human rights and fundamental freedoms current focus within my field, which is education and international development, has been on uh, enrollment and progression at an appropriate age, uh, regular attendance of schools, uh, appropriate learning levels, and the safe learning uh, environment and opportunities for equitable learning. So if these are available to individuals, we can say that they have access to education. Reef kind of mentioned in the reading of that charter uh, by the United Nations, um, there was a word that he mentioned, and it was quality, 
you know, and access on the fundamental level is opportunity, right? You can walk through the door of the schoolhouse. You can sit in a seat. You can receive instruction. You have the opportunity to be educated. Uh, however, we know in this country and in places throughout the world, those opportunities are not distributed equally. And also having, you know, access to an education does not mean it's a quality one, right? So we see how being able to physically receive some type of instruction does not then translate to opportunities and outcomes that will change someone's lived reality or their social mobility. So I, I don't, I mean, I think, again, access is opportunity is how I see it, but it does not go far enough as we kind of think through what does that mean for quality of education? What does it mean about financial resources? What does it mean about inclusion uh, and other, you know, equity? Access does not go far enough in, in the conversation. Yeah, I, I think that was a great definition and um, would just agree that, you know, we have to think about access to what. Um, and so if the what is wildly variable and isn't actually producing the kind of support needed for a young person to ultimately thrive as an adult in their in their context, then that's not really access to education in the in the definition that we'd want to see. So so I think it kind of getting back to like what is the purpose of educating people and what is it we're trying to give people access to has to be part of the discussion versus just is there a school, is there a place to go, is there a teacher? Can we dig a little deeper here and talk about some of the wide um, reaching barriers in the countries you work in. Sarah, I'll just go straight back to you here. Yeah, I mean, I work in the North American context, so we'll be curious to hear Arif's um, answer as well. I mean, I think, you know, even though we've had, uh, you know, public education available um, at the elementary and then high school level for over 100 years, uh, universally in the United States and in Canada and other OECD countries, you know, there are, there are just long-standing institutional barriers to equitable distribution of resources. Um, some of those are, were intentionally drawn along racial lines in the United States and in Canada um, that we're still really trying to overcome. You know, one of the things I find interesting, having grown up in Canada and then have lived my adult life in the United States, is the sort of underlying difference in how how the idea of, you know, access to opportunity plays out in different countries. Whereas the United States, you know, education has been designed to be a very local affair. You know, there's a, there are three layers to the system. There's the federal level, the state level, and the individual district level, and then the school level. And you have decision-making powers at all of those levels around the use of resources. And so that produces just extreme differences in what's available and what's delivered and what the outcomes are compared to some countries that have a more centralized sort of centrally controlled way to provide access to, to learning opportunities that are more standardized. And I think you could argue the benefits and pros and cons of both of those things, but certainly in the American context, you know, our history of, you know, inequity, um, dating back hundreds of years is still playing out today in the way resources are controlled and made differently available to children of different racial and socioeconomic levels and across geographies. So Arif, if we're talking across geographies, it'd be great to get you to talk a little bit about here. So how is sort of education in developing countries, um, you know, particularly in the global South, sort of being talked about? Like how is education sort of policy mm -hmm. being formulated? To connect with what Sarah has said, I work on a South Asian context and more specifically on one of the uh, most uh, difficult context uh, when it comes to uh, uh, the issues of educational access, which is 
rural Pakistan, there are millions of children that are out of school. And uh, most of these children tend to be rural, tend to be from uh, poor segments of society. Trying to understand access to education, uh, we also need to ask this question uh, of access for what? Uh, because studying this issue from the perspective of social mobility, uh, what I, I have been trying to learn from uh, the rural communities in Pakistan is that uh, people, of course, want to educate their children and they see intrinsic value within education, education, schooling being important in itself. But there are also very clear uh, material, uh, economic and social goals associated uh, with schooling. Uh, uh, people desperately want to break out of poverty. They want to achieve uh, social mobility, as Aya has uh, told us. Uh, they want to uh, attain a dignified living. And when schooling fails to deliver that, and it, it, there is no point for them to invest in schooling. So most of the time, the debate on access to education really uh, rests on the supply side of schooling uh, because historically uh, uh, the delivery of education has been constrained for a number of factors. But as education systems have expanded globally now, uh, uh, we are coming to the point where schools are available, schools are free, but, but then people are not attending those schools. Uh, and that really takes us to this issue of that what is that they want to achieve and what is that schooling is delivering them. Can schooling give them, uh, ensure their livelihoods? Uh, can it uh, give them a, a, a sense of empowered citizenship? And most of the times, especially if you look at uh, the Pakistani context, uh, the, the uh, access to economic opportunities, access to uh, employment opportunities is really shaped by uh, one's position in the social order, at least in the rural context. So it's that hierarchical, uh, differentiated access to schooling that feeds into the desires for pursuing education. So education policy is not really tackling most of these issues. The policy is still driven by this idea that if you uh, keep providing from the supply side, if you keep expanding schools, if you keep bringing in more teachers and books and resources into education system, this will tackle the problem of access and educational equality and equity. Uh, I think until we address the social hierarchy, hierarchy that shapes day-to-day -day living, but also the economic outcomes of schooling, unless we address that, uh, there is little we can achieve, especially uh, for the poor population. I, uh, I see, I'm just going by a visual cue here. I see you nodding. Is there something you wanted to add to that one? Yeah, I mean, I think Arif just mentioned, you know, the social hierarchy and Sarah actually talked a little bit about this earlier that particularly the United States context and perhaps also in Canada, um, we have both a social hierarchy and a racial hierarchy, right? So that is critical to this piece as we can consider how access, not only access to education and particularly a quality education is given, but who benefits uh, with access to certain types of education resources? How does that maintain inequality in, in countries both in the U.S. and other places throughout the world? And again, unfortunately, in in this in the United States context, I mean, whiteness is is privileged, and it also contributes to how access, how resources and educational opportunities are distributed. 
and who uh, benefits from certain resources, right? And what I mean by that specifically is, you know, so often whiteness in this country is associated with, you know, uh, more wealth, more intelligence, and et cetera. And therefore, you see, you know, schools that are uh, school districts that have more white students tend to also have uh, more access to resources, uh, better access to textbooks, uh, more access to extracurricular opportunities. They live, uh, those schools are in suburban neighborhoods and, and, and those students tend to have parents with higher educational attainment, right? So there's this, this loop of uh, race and also class uh, working together which often is creating more disenfranchisement from those from lower socioeconomic backgrounds and those from marginally excluded or racial backgrounds as well. So I think that's an important piece to this conversation, both in the K through 12 space, but also in the higher education space, which is in the space in the realm that I, I, I do my own research about how certain institutions, particularly predominantly white and historically white ones, our Ivy League institutions, right, still dominate the discourse as it relates to who has access to opportunities, who, uh, what schools are better quality and et cetera. And those tend to be our white institutions, our majority white, historically white institutions in this country. Yeah. And I, you know, the insidious thing that just building on Aya's point that shows up even within a school district, you know, if you have a school district in the United States that covers, uh, you know, a geographic area that has different income levels, et cetera, you will see within that school district differences in access to quality across schools that technically should sort of look and feel the same. And it is often divided on racial and socioeconomic lines, who has access to what. And, and that tends to be because of the political and social capital of the parents in certain neighborhoods versus others, their ability to raise money and contribute other things or to fund campaigns to sit on school boards. That decision-making around what's going on in every school can look really quite different, even within the same school district. Uh, and that produces different outcomes and creates this self-reinforcing uh, vicious cycle that, that Aya was talking about. Within rural Pakistani context, uh, uh, these stratifications are evident in the form of uh, uh, land ownership, uh, caste and kinship, religious identity, and gender. So it's not just you know access and enrollment, but also once children are at schools, the social relationships within schools between students and teacher and students, and also the contents of schooling and the way that is delivered, those are heavily shaped by one's position within that social order. Sarah, from, from your perspective, what can institutions and schools look to do going forward to, to help students thrive? You know, one, one, of, the, one of the sort of um, constructs we've been working against for a number of years, both in our K-12 and our higher education work, is the idea of designing schools to be student-centered to and to be community-centered. And so to sort of recognize the sort of assets, aspirations, energies, interests of the community and the students themselves, and to organize around supporting the journey of those students through the institution to get to the outcome in ways that are attending to what their needs are and their their interests versus a sort of institutionally driven kind of decision-making process. So, you know, at the higher education that level, that that means to create better information and guidance around what opportunities really are available in the institution and how to access them and to make sure those are being delivered directly to students in ways that are very engaging 
at the K-12 level, it's, it's, it's also meaning, you know, how do we organize instruction? Like, how do we, you know, move from a teacher-driven, teacher-centric model to more of a student-centered approach that is really honoring the interests and ideas of children and, and, and young adults in their education versus just delivering content to them? So some of those ideas um, seem promising in terms of being able to really support young people coming from a range of different backgrounds to achieve their full potential. But there's a long way to go because we've set up schools much more in a sort of top-down, sort of institutionally driven way and teacher-driven way. Uh, and, and so this requires breaking down the culture and routines and methodologies for instruction in ways that are you know, new for teachers and um, shifting the lens from the content to the student uh, and what the student needs um, requires sort of a shift in a paradigm. It's almost the perfect time for something like this to happen because students and teachers have essentially relearned their entire careers and professions or education methods over the last couple of years. So I guess it's a twofold question. Is it possible to sort of improve learning at scale, but also learn uh, things and implement things at a local level then? Uh, I think this this question is a a really good one um, based on what you and, and Sarah just mentioned. So what we've learned, particularly in this moment, this global pandemic, uh, pandemic that there is a lot of problems. There are a lot of problems as it relates to our education system, right? So I think, uh, frankly, a lot of the improvement in the learning environments are going to come from larger structural changes. So what I mean by that is, number one, we saw the digital divide, right? So we saw that going to a remote educational learning environment meant that people who did not have access to high-speed internet people who do not have actual laptops or cellular devices that had Wi-Fi uh, abilities to connect to Wi-Fi or internet services were not able to log in to their virtual classroom spaces, right? So we need to change the structure of that, right? We need to make sure that you know both inner cities, rural communities, all throughout the world, that there is some type of internet connection, right? That's a basic uh, resource that unfortunately still so many people, even in in cities like my hometown of Detroit don't have access, right? So that was a huge issue that we saw. Food security. So for a lot of young people, the classroom or the schools are where they are getting their meals, right? That's where they're getting their lunch, their breakfast. And now some schools have like, you know, hot meal services and et cetera. So you saw school districts having to create those resources to ensure that young people were still being able to eat so they can learn, right? Um, and then we have the housing insecurity, right? So we also had within this pandemic, people unable to afford rent or mortgages. And that created a wave of instability for young people to have a learning environment. So we see essentially that how we can improve the learning environments, particularly at scale, that happens outside of the classroom, in my opinion. Those are, there are larger and critical infrastructural differences that have to be implemented to ensure that there is, that young people can have access to high quality education. So I see that being a part of this conversation of course, we have the, the tracking that happens within schools. And by tracking, certain students are identified as higher achieving. Those students tend to have higher socioeconomic backgrounds. So they are more likely to be in the advanced courses. And we see that even within schools, right? Schools that have racial diversity, if you will, 
students of color are less likely to be tracked or placed into those classes for a host of reasons, often discrimination, frankly. So we see those things. And then we also have the disciplinary thing. So students of color are more likely to be disciplined within school environments, right? So we're pushing them outside of the classroom. So there are a host of both school level decision makings that could change. But more importantly, I think there are some institutional structural changes that have to be put in place so students can actually learn in the classroom. I think it's quite clear from the experiences within the global north and uh, beyond within the global south uh, that the uh, struggles for educational inequality uh, have to be fought outside the schools first. Uh, so the inequality, when that's uh, so massive and uh, uh, everywhere, then uh, there's little that schools alone can do in terms of, uh, you know, making some uh, administrative changes within their education system. Uh, the, 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 the question that what could be done at the local level uh, and that's scalable as well. Now, what is happening uh, within my field in education and international development, it's heavily driven by global best practices, which are picked up from somewhere and imposed, uh, uh, attempted to be transposed across the globe. That's not how it works. If we look at the expansion of uh, mass schooling uh, in the countries of the global north, it was heavily shaped by the social movements of of the times, uh, the, the movements for racial equality, the movements for uh, gender equality, the, the movements, the, the class struggles and so on and so forth. So those struggles need to be localized and uh, the, uh, the wider education policy or inter education and international development really needs to see the need for these struggles so that they can shape the forms and the nature and the content of school level reforms. So yeah, there is possibility of large scale changes, but only if the local uh, level uh, realities are allowed to uh, 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 find their way through the education system and shape the education system uh, in the first place. Just getting back to your question though, Nick, around like this moment in time, it actually feels like a really interesting moment of reckoning. Um, around the idea that, you know, education has to be set up to serve the people that it is, you know, they're the intended beneficiaries. And right now, and I know this is true in the United States, I'm, I'm interested in how it's going in Pakistan and other places, but like we're seeing the largest drop in enrollment in public schools we've seen in decades. Parents are not necessarily actually sending their four or five-year-olds to kindergarten this year. Um, there's about 1.5 million students who are not enrolled in the United States that were enrolled two years ago. Uh, we're seeing you know, 8% drops in the number of, you know, black and Latino students filling out the FAFSA to apply for college. So this next year, we are seeing evidence of the lack of trust that people have in the education system playing out in their decision making around whether to even send their children to school. And that could trigger an orientation much more around the idea that there's a customer here that needs to actually be whose needs need to be met. And if you know, it's been sort of this forced thing that everyone just had to go to school, but that got thrown out a little bit out the window in the last couple of years. And we have this opportunity with additional resources and l taking advantage of some of the very innovative, creative things that people did during the pandemic to actually reframe, you know, what it is we're all trying to do here together to, to rebuild that trust, to honor the the needs and, and desires of the communities that are 
supposedly benefiting from education and to to create new ways of working on solving some of these longstanding problems. Is that going to happen magically? No. Um, it'll be all over the place. But, you know, I think we have to pay attention to the fact that, you know, people are voting with their feet on education right now. And that in the long run will will be detrimental to our economy and our society, but it's a signal of, of something that needs to change. You just highlighted some big figures. Can we can we talk a little bit more about this idea of trust? Is it a question of regaining confidence and trust because of because of where we are with regards to a global pandemic? Or or is it all about the type of education or skills that students are, are getting? Well, I mean, I think it the pandemic exposed a deep-seated lack of trust that was already there. Um, but it gave people an opportunity to make some different choices in some ways. Um, so yes, I think part of rebuilding trust is just assuring parents that, okay, the environment is safe from disease. But the environment in many schools was never safe psychologically or even physically for some students. And parents are sort of like, why would I want to send my kid back to that if they actually are doing okay at home? Um or, or yes, yeah, some young people are saying, well, why do I want to come back to high school when I've now got a job and I'm supporting my family? You know, these are very rational decisions. Um, and they're good. hopefully they're going to put pressure on the system to actually address the underlying issues that were that were already there that got revealed in more stark ways during the pandemic. I see a reef holding a book there. I don't know if that's a cue. There's this uh, great book, uh, The Death of Human Capital, which has been uh, like it came out last year. Uh, is written by uh, Hugh Lauder, uh, who is my colleague and uh, his co-authors. What it really tells us and which partially answers your question as well, I think most of uh, uh, the thinking around education has been from the idea of human capital, that we invest in education because there are clear market returns to schooling. So uh, uh, the whole planning around education uh, at least in, in, in not just in the countries of global south, but everywhere, the justification for investment in education has uh, predominantly been through its economic returns. But what does evidence tell us now uh, is that that the the the, the, the link between uh, human capital and its returns is uh, fading with time. Uh, the human capital theory really tells us. I mean, it it only helps us. Uh, by addressing some of the supply side issues of the labor market, that how to provide uh, uh, skilled people. But the connection between the skills and the job, between education and jobs, that's that's not addressed by the by the way we have been thinking about education. So with, with the uh, massive automation happening at this point, are the overall wider changes within the economic production uh, within countries and uh, at the global scale are really uh, uh, taking the uh, issue of uh, are they, they, the promised returns uh, in terms of jobs uh, uh, really out of equation. So why should people get education? I think we need to uh, begin rethinking about the whole idea of uh, education and its purpose. And uh, Arif kind of went in the direction I was going to, to go in, um, particularly thinking about higher education, right? So this, I think some of these decreased in numbers is this reality that the ROI, the return on investment is not where it needs to be, particularly with the level of student loan debt that many college-going individuals have, right? So I think in the United States, it's $1.7 trillion in student loan debt. And then you see disproportionately African-American college graduates 
own, on average, I think $25,000 more in student loan debt than their white college parts, but they are not uh, gaining access to the same types of kind of jobs post-graduation where they can actually, you know, pay that, that debt back. So I think that's part of the issue that we see that higher education in particular is, is actually starting to exacerbate some of the, the inequalities that we see in the labor market as well. So I think that is part of it. Going back to the K through 12 piece though, I mean, we're also seeing how individual decision-making, so parents choosing to opt out of the public school system to homeschool their children, that is actually facilitating some more inequality, right? So you're seeing parents who have access to resources, who can stay at home, who can work remotely. We saw there was a huge, uh, I think it was a New York Times article last year when they were talking about these uh, kind of parent pods, these educational pods where parents were creating these kind of in-home learning environments in this, you know, in the suburban neighborhoods where people would drop off their children and they would learn together and they could hire tutors or they can have a parent stay at home to help facilitate the learning. People who live in um, households where parents have to work or were or are essential workers we're not able to kind of benefit from that same type of additional learning. So I think there is both this distrust because we don't know what's happening in the K through 12 system because of the pandemic and also some of the um, ever shifting policies. And then not to mention in the United States, and I'm laughing here because I think it's ridiculous. There is this um, kind of momentum against critical race theory, right? And the ability to even talk about race and some of the underlying issues that actually facilitate and reproduce the inequality that we see in our educational environments. So there are a host of issues that are contributing to some of the opting out that we see by parents uh, in the in the K-12 space and also by young people who are choosing to try to pursue uh, non-traditional, if you will, kind of a, a higher education because they cannot afford to take on the student loan debt that will saddle them uh, with debt that will, not, will deny them for purchasing homes or contributing fully to society. So I think there's a, a host of reasons here that we're seeing some of um, these decreases in, in who's actually enrolling into school on both the K-12 and the higher education side. We're starting to talk about loan debt and fees and access. Can, can we talk a little bit about how we fund education at the, at the local, state and national level? What do you see that needs to change? Well, and I mean, I think some of what I'll say may also be somewhat analogous to the secondary level in developing countries that, that RF is, is focusing on. But the, the, the funding for post-secondary education in the United States has not recovered post-2008. So during the, the, the big recession, the Great Recession, there are a lot of cuts to post-secondary education that were funded through state governments. They haven't really been restored and the cost got passed on to the consumer. Um, which has helped just aggravate the already um, chronic debt crisis. So you're seeing now, I think, a lot of interest in the idea that there should be much greater access to uh, free or low-cost post-secondary education, at least for the first two years. So folks like the Georgetown Center for Education and Economy are, you know, calling it like 14 is the new 12. You know, we we need to in our economy if you need ultimately to have a family wage job and economic mobility, if you need to have some form of post-secondary educational credential to have value that's valued in the labor market, then we owe it to young people to provide that and to make that ex universally accessible through, you know, low or no cost tuition, at least for the first two years. 
So there's, there's, I mean, there's a lot of analysis going on around, well, how do you really do that? Do you do that through expansion of Pell Grants? Do you do it through just reduced tuition in community colleges? There's lots of experiments going on there, but it's a positive, it's positive momentum there. It's just highly complicated. And you see it in Biden's um, American Jobs Plan and the American Families Plan. Some of that is starting to show up in, in policy, but it's a policy question of how do you, how do you ultimately find and allocate the resources to give all young people that step towards economic self-sufficiency and mobility. And right now, just basic funding to K-12 is not sufficient. And there are many, many young people falling through the, you know, the cracks there and having to self-fund or not be able to, to complete a post-secondary education as a result. And Arif, can you, can you pick it up here and talk about the context for the, the Global South? At the end of the day, financing education in uh, the big econ- developed economies in the U.S. or in U.K. or other similar economies, uh, the, the addressing these issues uh, ends up uh, in the economic policies, which uh, uh, lead to an economic system uh, globally, uh, which provides fewer opportunities for economic growth in the countries of the global south. So if that's going to be the case, if the capitalist economic order as we know of, it uh, it continues working in the way it is working, uh, then uh, uh, the the hope for uh, all these economies to catch up, to grow at a sustainable and decent rate uh, so that they are able to generate their revenue and invest in education, those hopes are hard to uh, uh, maintain. Uh, So something really fundamental needs to be done uh, when it comes to the uh, education within the Global South, especially in relation to the economic system. What that could be, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I'm not an expert in this at all. but I, I, my understanding is that there's this quite complicated relationship between spending on education, economic growth, and educational outcomes. And that's been something that's been a conundrum for economists and policy experts around the world, both in the North and the South, around like, well, how much should you – is it a question of how much we're spending total or how we're spending what we're spending – and it, it obviously it's both, and there are some basic thresholds above which you must be to get any reform of outcome. But even within the United States, we see such dramatic differences in funding per student funding across states, and it's not 100% correlated with outcomes. So that is a, a really tricky, tricky situation um, that I think clouds this argument somewhat. I'm so happy you mentioned that, right? So because you do have certain, you have school districts that serve, you know, perhaps historically underrepresented students who um, have more money, if you will, right? But we're still seeing, you know, disparate outcomes. And again, this, particularly in the the U.S. uh, kind of context, (laughs) there's so much, so many barriers, right? Race being a very important one that is still contributing to these, these kind of unequal outcomes. So first, you know, and going back to this, this funding question, uh, and I'm thinking, as I mentioned earlier, student loan debt is a huge area, right? So how could we, uh, kind of contribute to, you know, increasing social mobility, increasing uh, home ownership, which is, you know, down for certain, you know, millennials and, you know, um, childbearing, which is down for millennials. A lot of it has to do with money, right? And if we cancel student loan debt, it becomes, it's a it's an issue of equity and particularly racial equity, right? As I quoted earlier, Black um, 
you know, college degree holders are more likely to have, you know, more student loan debt than their white counterparts and uh, less likely to be able to pay it back because of the jobs that they are able to have access to and because they don't have generational wealth or like wealth reserves or parents to help support them. Right. So canceling student loan debt, that's a racial equity issue. Then you think about philanthropy. Right. So we just, you know, Mackenzie Scott, and in December, you know, said she was making a commitment to donate, I think, $4.1 billion uh, to both organizations and also 35 colleges, including community colleges, historically black colleges and universities, um, and also schools that enroll large Native American populations, right? That type of money, you know, the $4.1 billion can change so much about these institutions and ability who they're able to serve. So we talked about access earlier. So if they have more money, then they can support more students, right? They can support, you know, students who may be low income. They can provide more scholarships and aid so they can support those students. So I do think there is a a place for kind of foundations and philanthropy if they are able to give to institutions and organizations that are particularly under-resourced, intentionally, frankly, if they're able to get to those schools versus donating half a million, uh, $500 million to Harvard and schools that actually have billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars, then we can actually start to try to, you know, allow these these organizations and institutions to, to be able to play the game, to really be able to compete and to be able to support students that those types of institutions do not admit or accept or, you know, support. So I think money is a huge part of this problem, but we cannot disentangle it uh, from race, right? And, and who has access to what resources and are able to, and who are benefiting from certain kind of cash reserves. So I think it's a very intricate kind of component to this this larger story. Yeah, I mean, I think that if we're talking about aid or philanthropy, um, you know, yeah, being clear, like there's there's a way that philanthropy can showcase excellence, um, can help build basic infrastructure, can, you know, sort of create leverage and tipping points for organizations to go and then get other sources of funds to be create space for innovation and, and supporting new ideas to come forth around education, but it can't really make up for the basic funding problem. Like that basically that public resources must be the main source of what builds the capacity of the system to achieve outcomes. So, you know, but I think there's a very useful interplay between philanthropy and aid and p- private dollars and public dollars um, that can come create those spaces or innovation or can create opportunities to elevate certain institutions that are doing great things like HBCUs to, you know, ha- be able to play on a bigger playing field. Ultimately, though, to influence what happens with the public dollars that that ultimately are the thing that are going to have to sustain the whole system. And to your point about dollars being given to larger institutions, does it sort of lend itself to a conversation um, around the idea of social capital um, at the institutional level? It's such a complicated, complicated question. I mean, the United States is set up in such a hierarchical way in its education system. And those who are going to highly selective institutions are being imbued with a sense of social capital and networks and relationships that are just so much more powerful than than in, you know, those attending other kinds of institutions. And that's a basic inequity that we don't really acknowledge as part of the education system, but is, is this invisible thing that's there. And um, so one, one of the things we've been funding a lot is, is, is the idea that the education system writ large, the public education system, should take on the responsibility to deliver relationships and ac- access to opportunity that is in the form of those kinds of social capital assets that 
by giving young people certain experiences, whether it's opportunities to do project-based learning, work in their communities, have mentors, work, have internships, all of those things create relationships and networks and understanding and know-how that young people then carry forward and help propel them as adults. If we don't pay attention to all that and we just deliver classes, we are setting up a basic inequity that is just very, very hard for young people to overcome on their own. So how can we really back to our very beginning, the purpose of the education system, expand its vision for what it can support young people to do so that they have access to those kinds of networks and relationships that are sort of the invisible asset that help you, you know, as an adult to navigate your your way in the labor force or in your community. And, you know, I think we see programs that are doing that well, that are paying attention both to the content of the learning, but also the relationships and the role of mentors, advisors, other forms of connections, just acknowledging it's not just what you know, but it's also who you know that helps you in life. And if the education system, but both higher education institutions as well as high schools can take on that ethos, it's not actually that hard to build relationships for, for young people, but it's not something that people feel currently feel full responsibility for, but it could be something the education system takes on in a way that is very explicitly there in private institutions. Um, that access to that network, the alumni network, all those things, that's a thats a real selling point. It's there. So, you know, how do we balance that out in, in a broader set of institutions that are serving many, many more young people than just those very highly selective ones? Yeah, if I may dive in here. So, I mean, so you have this one piece, you have social capital, right? Which is are these resources that we garner through social networks and connections. But I think a, a bigger piece to this puzzle is cultural, right? So cultural capital, right? Um, and, you know, cultural capital, the knowledge and skills that we have that kind of fit or work within a particular kind of field or setting. And what we see is marginalized or students from historically kind of oppressed or contemporarily oppressed backgrounds they come into these spaces with cultural capital, right? However, the cultural capital that they maintain is often not legible, right? It's not recognized, it's not valued. So consequently, we tell them that they must change, right? To fit the setting, to gain access to the social capital, right? So how you present yourself, how you show up in the classroom, in the K through 12 space or in higher education, we tell young people that how they show up especially if they speak a certain way, they dress a certain way, they look a certain way, we tell them that that won't give them access to the social capital that is necessary to get a high paying job. Consequently, we tell them they have to kind of fit this mold. I actually think that's part of the problem. We need to have an educational system that honors the diversity and experiences and the way people show up as opposed to telling them that they are inherently, something's inherently wrong with how they show up in the world. And therefore they have to change themselves to fit these modes to gain access to these resources and networks, right? I think until we change, you know, how we let people show up and we do see this shift happening. I mean, I think the working from home culture, the I'm gonna have these sweatpants on and still do my job equally well culture, I actually think is gonna help us challenge that a little bit. But I think unfortunately, if we tell people that they have to, only narrowly fit this box that again appeals to whiteness, right? Because social capital, how we understand it, frankly, is how do white people network? How do white people leverage their resources to be executives and et cetera? And then we tell everybody else, that's what you do. That's what you have to do. Until we kind of shift that culture, it's going to be this cycle of students from underrepresented, marginalized and oppressed backgrounds 
having to shift and mold themselves to fit um, some type of standard that they will never be able to satisfy because they will never necessarily truly have that kind of cultural or symbolic capital that white organizations, institutions think is necessary to be successful in those places. Yeah. You know, I think the good news on this is that um, we recently did this 4,000 student research project where we um, focused mostly on black and Latino students um, between the ages of 16 and 21. And we really were out there asking them like, how do you see your future? How do you define success for yourself? How do you architect your pathway to your future? Who's helping you? A whole bunch of questions. And one of the really interesting findings that came back was how much students valued their own identities, how much they saw themselves as their own personal change agent. Like this is a generation of students who actually feel, whether it's because they've had social media or other things, there is a sense of empowerment. I think they see in the tools that they have available to them and they, and they've also, you know, I think there's, there's quite a lot of just an ethos around valuing your own, your own self and your, and taking care of your own self and, and, taking agency around who you are um, in ways that I think like my generation didn't have. We were trained to be more compliant. <laughs> um, so that's really exciting that young people see, you know, s- see themselves through a, a very positive, um, culturally affirming kind of way. But that doesn't mean that the institutions they're going into are ready for that. And I think Aya's point is really well taken that you know, how can institutions become much more student-centered and and see those attributes and, and backgrounds and lived experiences and identities as, as huge assets to, to, to bring creativity, to bring diversity, to bring new ways of doing things that, um, that often are going to be better for everybody. Um, so I think that's, that's, you know, both the, the exciting potential, but also the big challenge uh, for education systems, at least in in the in the developed north at the moment. I think these are great points uh, made by Aya and Sarah. Uh, uh, of course, uh, what is called as social capital, which is deeply problematic concept, because uh, what is uh, deeply hierarchical and political is given kind of uh, a depoliticized uh, notion. Uh, but of course, it matters a lot. It shapes life chances of individuals. Uh, and educational institutions are really fundamental to uh, that social reproduction that takes place in in society through these networks. Now, the choice is either we uh, help students from the disadvantaged backgrounds to to excel uh, 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 on the game, to be really expert uh, uh, in playing that game, or, uh, or should we help them actually to question the game, to critically look at these uh, practices and these relationships and alliances and solidarities and how they take place and how they work out, how they play out and how they perpetuate inequality outside uh, the education system. I think if we uh, are uh, taking it uh, in a depoliticized way, if we are helping students to kind of develop their own social capital, uh, there will always be inequalities. Even let's uh, suppose you 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 promote this wider social capital within one school, uh, then there will be hierarchy between one school and the other. All sorts of hierarchies will always be there. But if the education system is critical enough. If it, it, you know, critical race theory was mentioned here, uh, that's one of the ways of uh, deconstructing these social hierarchies, which are absolutely arbitrary, but 
only. They become arbitrary when we start questioning them, when we start looking at their arbitrariness. Other we, otherwise, we accept them as natural order uh, because we are really trying to fit uh, in uh, within those modes. Uh, so I think education can play a really big role, uh, but only if there are critical thoughts which are uh, given to students uh, early on. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. There was so much interesting stuff in there. I don't think I fully realized before how much education can help and hinder equality or how different educational circumstances can be around If the you world. enjoyed this episode, please make sure to check out our episode on what a more just future might look like. You can find that in season two. In the meantime, make sure to leave us a review on whatever platform you listen to your podcasts. And as ever, please spread the mind over chatter word. A huge thanks once again to our guests, Arif, Aya and Sarah. And stay tuned for the next season of Mind Over Chatter. Music was by the extremely talented Carlo Ladd and artwork by the equally talented Alex Sadler. See you next time. Bye. Bye.